An ankle monitor emits a GPS signal to a base unit that's connected to the police or to a monitoring service. Courts use this device to track the whereabouts of prisoners serving their sentence under house arrest. It electronically tethers the person to his home. Now, I'm quite sure that the Apostle Paul never wore an ankle monitor. But according to Acts chapter 28 and verse 30, when prisoner Paul arrived in Rome, he did spend two whole years under house arrest, awaiting his trial before Caesar Nero. Paul had been accused of treason against the emperor for bowing to another king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Paul had appealed his case to Caesar Nero. He was sent to Rome to stand trial, but it would be months before Nero would find the time to hear him out. While Paul waited on his day in court, the preacher of the gospel was tethered to a rented house. Hey, but the message of the gospel was anything but tethered. For Paul took advantage of being there in the heart of the empire. In the last verse in Acts, we're told that he preached the kingdom of God and things concerning Jesus Christ. And along with a constant stream of visitors who poured through the house to hear Paul explain the gospel, he used his time wisely, for he wrote four letters. We call them the prison epistles, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Paul picked up quill and papyrus, and he penned a letter that has become one of the great treasures of the church. In the book of Ephesians, Paul crystallizes the basic tenets of Christianity in the Christian life. Hey, if Bible books were given stars, Ephesians would be a five-star letter. The book receives rave reviews from everyone who has immersed themselves in its pages. Here's a sampling of the comments. The most profoundest thing ever written. The queen of the epistles. The crown and climax of Pauline theology. The distilled essence of the Christian religion. Paul sounds the depths of truth and reaches its heights. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul's inspired mind soar to greater heights in my favorite description of this letter, infinities and immensities for those bound in shallows and miseries. I could do with a few infinities and immensities. How's that for some impressive endorsements? Well, this morning we're going to begin a many-month study that has the potential of revolutionizing your life. And I know this. I know of this letter's power, for it has had that effect on me. When I was 20 years old, two things happened to me. I gave my life to Jesus, and I had nose surgery. The doctor fixed a deviated septum. How's that for an altar call? Come to Jesus, and you can have nasal surgery. You're supposed to get a new heart, not a new nose. Well, at the time, my conversion and my surgery seemed to be a weird coincidence. But now I realize that it was the providence of God at work in my life. My recovery was pretty much pain-free, but I couldn't go anywhere for two weeks. I couldn't do anything for fear of breaking loose the repairs. And so I decided to put my solitary confinement to good use. I was a new Christian, and I was hungry for God. 
And for 14 days, I did nothing but pour over this letter to the Ephesians. And it really did change my life. The Holy Spirit became my teacher. And for the first time, my hungry heart learned just how much God really loves me. My faith was set on fire. I realized who I was and what I had in Christ, and I have literally never been the same since. Those two weeks gave me a special affinity for this letter, and that's why I'm looking forward to the next few months. For me, it's going to be spending some time with an old friend. We're going to start this morning by reading three verses, the first three verses of the letter. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, every letter has some common ingredients, and Paul's letter to the Ephesians is no exception. Look at the envelope. There in the upper left-hand corner is the return address. The first half of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Then move to the center of the envelope. Right there in the middle, you'll see its recipients and their address. The second half of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Next, open up the envelope and you'll find the author's greeting in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in verse 3, the body of the letter begins with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Now notice first the return address on this letter. It reveals its author. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This word apostle, it refers to an official emissary sent to deliver a strategic message. When a member of the State Department sits down with someone from a foreign regime and relays a presidential warning, they're issuing or they're functioning, functioning as an apostle. Paul had a message of love and pardon and peace from the king of kings. And he was on a mission to declare this good news to anyone who would listen. And Paul, we're told, was an apostle by the will of God. You know, you don't run for election and get appointed to apostle. You don't earn the position by climbing the ladder. Even if your family's influential and has tons of money, no amount of lobbying will win you an apostleship. The only way to become an apostle is if God wills it. No amount of wealth or ambition or influence or good fortune can obtain God's calling. He appoints whom He chooses. And did you know the same is true for pastors? A self-appointed pastor is a pretend pastor. A true pastor is one who's God-ordained, who has been called by the will of God. Paul was called by God on the road to Damascus. He was headed there to persecute the church, but God chose to turn the persecutor into the preacher. Well, the return address on this letter is pretty standard, but its recipient 
And its destination is extremely unusual, for not many letters have two addresses. This letter is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it's a good thing that this letter was sent via courier. For with all due respect for our postal workers in the congregation, there's no way that our U.S. post office could have gotten this letter to the right folks, not with two addresses. It's to one group, the saints and faithful, who live concurrently in two places, in Ephesus and in Christ. On the one hand, its recipients are in Ephesus. On Paul's third missionary journey, he spent a whopping two years in the town of Ephesus, teaching up the new believers. He was there longer than any other city. And that's not really surprising. Hey, you'd want to spend time in Ephesus too. Ephesus was a picturesque port city on the Mediterranean. It was surrounded by beautiful blue beaches and pristine harbors. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said his goodbyes to the Ephesian elders there on one of these beaches. I'm sure the believers in Ephesus, probably Paul too, he liked to go down to the rocky coast to surf and sail and soak up some rays. During Paul's extended stay in Ephesus, churches were planted throughout the surrounding region. The city of Ephesus became a hub for Christianity and continued in that role for many, many years to come. Actually, in a few of the Greek manuscripts, the two words in Ephesus get left out. It's as if the scribe who copied this letter didn't want to limit its readership. He sensed that this letter was meant for all churches, not just Ephesus, in all the region, in all the ages, over all the earth. Perhaps the location was left blank by some perceptive scribe so that every church could insert their own address to the saints who are in Atlanta. But this letter has a second address. It's two believers in Ephesus, but more importantly, they're in Christ. Its recipients occupy two locations simultaneously. Physically, they're in Ephesus, but spiritually, they're in Christ. And did you know that every one of you, every believer in Christ, also has two locations? Physically, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and spiritually, I live in Christ Jesus. In the film, Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner, he plays an Iowa farmer who hears a mysterious voice tell him, build it and they will come. And so he builds a baseball diamond out in the cornfield. And players from yesteryear, they come out of the corn stalks to play ball on his field. In the movie, his field of dreams, it butts up to another dimension. Another world exists just beyond the outfield. And in a sense, this is what Paul is saying to you and me, that the physical world in which we live butts up to another world. We eat and we work and we drive around and we play and we raise our kids in this tangible, tactile world. But there exists a spiritual, eternal heavenly world, just beyond. Whether we're conscious of it or not, as Christians, we live simultaneously and concurrently in two realms. If Paul were writing to us, he would address the letter to those who are in Atlanta and in Christ. A spiritual realm lies adjacent to our physical world, 
and it is reachable to us by faith. And this becomes the defining issue for every Christian. Which way am I leaning? Which way are you leaning? Are you caught up and immersed in what's going on around you physically? Or are you listening and reaching and stretching toward what's beyond? In the corn stalks, you might say. Paul is going to sound like the voice in the stalks that haunted Kevin Costner. Build it and they will come. Hey, build a strong identity in Christ. Learn to live for and trust in things that are spiritual and eternal and heavenly. What's beyond this physical and temporal world. And God's blessings will invade and fill up every corner of your life. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes what occurs when a person repents and believes and becomes united with Christ. He says, it's not a superficial change. It's not merely that we don some robe of respectability or decency or morality. It's not some surface improvement or some temporal change. It is as profound as this, that we are taken from one realm and put into another. Did you know that every Christian is an extraterrestrial? You are. You're an extraterrestrial. We're called to keep our feet on terra firma, solid ground, but our hearts are always being summoned to the heavens. On the one hand, we live in a world that's hollow and empty. We grope about to find fulfillment, relying on only our five senses, what we can see or smell or hear or taste or touch. Whereas at the same time, we're bumping up against a realm that promises us spiritual satisfaction for all eternity. And we can access it by faith. We need to grow in our faith. In fact, I can think of no better training ground for faith than being stretched out between these two realms. Realize every day you are sinking your roots a little further into one of these two worlds. These Ephesians are a single group occupying two locations. But notice they're very important people. At least Paul thinks so. He refers to them by lofty titles, saints and faithful. And this is so strange, for when you go back and you read the book of Acts and in its account of Paul's time there in Ephesus, you realize that the believers there were just normal folk. They were everyday Christians like you and me. And let me just ask you, I mean, how often does someone refer to you as saint? I mean, every morning we wake up and Kathy turns to me and says, hey, Saint Sandy. Oh, don't believe that. I walk into work and I'm greeted by my coworkers. Hi, St. Sandy. Don't hold your breath waiting on that to happen. And this is what's odd to me. Ephesians wasn't written to a few celebrity Christians or to New Orleans football fans or to specially designated Roman Catholics who somehow impressed the Vatican or to super spiritual and super devoted servants or even to martyrs for Jesus' sake. These folks were regular believers like us, yet Paul identifies and addresses them as saints and faithful. I want you to realize this up front. There is an, uh, there is an obvious disconnect between the way Paul sees his readers, which includes you and me, and the way we see ourselves, 
There's a disconnect. Certainly none of us are saints in the Roman Catholic sense of the term. And we should be glad, for in Catholicism you have to be dead to be a saint. And then there's all kinds of red tape to fill out. If you were alive, you could be a saint and be alive. By the time you filled out all the paperwork, you'd, you'd want to be dead. Actually, it was in medieval times when the church began singling out Christians for some unusual piety or power and then bestowing on them the title of saint. To some degree, sainthood was a political tool. It was a corrupt church's way to capitalize on the popularity of a sincere believer after he was dead, even though the church may have opposed him while he was alive. The bottom line, God never wanted an elite branch of Christianity. Paul refers to all Christians as saints. In the New Testament, every believer, young or old, rich or poor, noble or commoner, is referred to by this term, saint. Actually, the Greek word saint is hagios. It means to set aside for special use. In the Old Testament, the bowls and the shovels and the pans used in the temple service were all called hagios, or holy. They were only for the temple. They were for the purpose and worship and service of God. You know, it's funny, but in a biblical sense, in a biblical sense, you could refer to my toothbrush as a holy toothbrush. You could. And do you know why? Because it's dedicated to the service of my teeth only. It doesn't go into anyone else's mouth. When my kids come to visit, they don't go back in the bathroom, and they're never tempted to brush their teeth with my toothbrush. You see, this is what makes a person holy today. Have you reserved yourself for God? Have you taken a pledge to live your one and only life for Him? Are you devoted to the worship and service of Jesus? If you have, if you are, then you too are holy, or you're a saint. You're special, and you're loved. And you're important to God. In fact, the New Testament teaches that there are really only two types of people in the world. And the distinction isn't racial or national or cultural or sexual. It's spiritual. You can divide all of mankind into two categories. There's the saints and there's the ain'ts. That's it. Either you've committed your life to Jesus or you haven't. Either you're a saint or you're an ain't. And here's a key point that I want to make this morning. The way Paul saw these believers wasn't the way they saw themselves. And it's certainly not how we see ourselves. In Atlanta, I'm a husband, and I'm a father, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a little league coach. But in Christ, I'm somebody special. I'm a saint. And yet how many of us truly consider ourselves special to God and loved by the Savior, and important to the Creator? Probably not many. Hey, maybe, you're, maybe you are a saint and not an ain't, yet more often than not, you feel like an ain't rather than a saint. One of the strategic lessons to learn in the Christian life is to learn to see yourself as Christ sees you. See, here's one of life's biggest questions. Who am I? Who am I? And people try to answer that in many different ways. I'm married. I'm single. 
I'm a parent. I'm an empty nester. I'm firstborn. I'm a middle child. I'm smart. I'm dumb. I'm athletic. I'm academic. I'm mechanical. I'm musical. I'm an introvert. No, I'm a type A. I'm a thinker. I'm a feeler. Some folks define themselves by the products they consume, the car they drive, the coffee they drink, the clothes they wear, even the style of their hair. Other folks base their identity on their social networking. How many Facebook friends do you have? How many followers on Twitter? I mean, people build an identity around the music on their iPad, on their playlist. Or they'll build their identity around their college football team. Oh, my. Or a video game. And there are people who define themselves by their work. Oh, I'm a plumber. Or I'm a product manager. Or I'm a pediatrician. Or I'm a police officer. Or I'm a pastor. Major life experiences also have a way of defining a person. You'll hear someone say, well, I'm a single parent. Or maybe they'll say, I never had a dad. Or I'm a failure. Or I'm a cancer survivor. Or I'm a recovering alcoholic. Or I'm a victim. Or I'm, an, I'm unemployed. Or I'm an ex-con. Hey, who are you? Hey, there are numerous factors that help us explain you. But that's not what I'm talking about. Not what explains you, but what defines you. I'm asking, not what do you do or what's been done to you. I'm asking, who are you? Each of us forms an identity of some sort. A way to relate to life and measure our importance and our value. You know, some of you think of yourself as Mr. Tough Guy. That's the identity that you've kind of shaped over the years. You're Mr. Tough Guy. Others of you see yourself as a smooth dealer. You're the guy that can make the sale, make it happen. Or you're the popular socialite. Or you're the cool Casanova, man. You got away with the ladies. Or you're a sophisticated intellectual. Or you're the class clown. You like to make everybody laugh. Or you're that successful plotter and provider. Or you're the ageless athlete. We saw some of those on the river yesterday. Or you're Mr. Fix-It. Man, there's nothing you can't fix. Or you're the perfect parent. Just look at my kids. But what happens when life throws you a curve and that identity blows up in your face? And trust me, it eventually will. The tough guy gets busted. The perfect parent's kid flunks out. The popular socialite gets rejected. The ageless athlete blows out his knee. The cool Casanova gets dumped. The smooth dealer has to file for bankruptcy. That successful plotter gets laid off. The class clown tells a joke and nobody laughs. What do you do when the identity you've built to give your life meaning suddenly falls apart? When your source of significance gets yanked out from under you? Hey, if you choose to form an identity around your physical location, then you'll spend all of your time updating it and polishing it and improving on it, but it will inevitably let you down. The bulldogs will lose. Yeah, how crushing that is. Or your job will get phased out. Or you'll get defriended. 
or you'll become sick, or your kids will grow up and move out, and you'll end up devastated. And you'll have to choose another identity. And this is what happens to people. They bounce around from one superficial identity to another. Or they lock into a life with Jesus. And they develop an eternal reality that can never change. In fact, you can start today. You can start the process of learning to see yourself as God sees you, as a new creation in Christ, as a saint. You can build a new identity around Jesus Christ, and he'll never fail you or reject you or abandon you. You can ground and anchor your significance in a solid rock. You see, this matter of identity, it has mega consequences for how we see ourselves will shape how we live our lives. This is how life works, whether we want it to or not. We can't escape it. Have you ever done something and someone say, well, who do you think you are? It's because who we think we are determines how we live our lives. This is the outline for the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 teach us who we are and what we have in Christ. Then in light of those treasures, chapters 4 through 6 describe their impact on how we do life and church and love and family and business. It's so true, identity determines behavior. If you see yourself in Christ, it will affect you. It will affect who you hang out with, what you hold on to, how you spend your time, how you handle money, work, and people. I love Mark Twain's story of Huckleberry Finn, especially when the little street urchin gets adopted by the widow Douglas. See, he's lived in the back alleys and in the backwoods all his life. And the widow Douglas thinks he needs to be refined. He needs some domestication. And so she tries to orient him to the comforts of civilization. Here's how Mark Twain tells the story. Huck Finn's newly acquired wealth and the fact he was now under the protection of the widow Douglas introduced him to society. No, dragged him into it, hurled him into it, and his sufferings were almost more than he could bear. The widow's servants kept him clean and neat, combed and brushed. They bedded him nightly in unsympathetic sheets that had not one little stain which he could press to his heart and know for a friend. He had to eat with knife and fork. He had to use a napkin. Wherever he turned, the bars and shackles of civilization shut him in and bound him hand and foot. And it all lasted three weeks before Huckleberry flew the coop. He went back to sleeping in the hog sheds and eating stolen scraps. He had been adopted, but he had never learned to see himself in that new light. He had never developed a new identity. And old Huck ended up returning to the slop. Many of us, we're children of God. In Christ, we are somebody. We're a saint, not an ain't. Over the next several weeks, we're going to learn that we've been chosen and adopted and accepted and redeemed and forgiven and sealed. But none of this will impact you practically if you don't believe it and take it to heart and really own these truths. I love a song by 10th Avenue North. It's called You Are More. And the chorus goes like this. 
You are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems you create. You've been remade. And we need to believe that truth with all our hearts, that we've been remade, that we are more. Well, you see, Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. But then he pins his signature greeting, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was Paul's normal greeting, but you need to understand, this was not typical of its time and of its culture. In fact, you walk the streets of the ancient world, and you would have never, ever heard this greeting. You would have heard grace or charis. That was the Greek greeting. Charis speaks of unmerited favor. When a fellow Greek greeted you with grace, they were wishing that you had a better day than you deserved. That was common greeting. Peace or shalom was the Hebrew greeting. The Jews used it, in fact, as a greeting and a farewell. They wished you peace coming and going. Peace is the byproduct of grace. You see, grace was the Western greeting. Peace was the greeting from the East. And there was nothing really special about either of these salutations until you combine them. For when you put grace and peace together, they proclaim the Christian gospel. The grace of God purchased on the cross of Jesus has brought to the world peace and rest. Unmerited favor is what produces inexplicable peace. Thus, grace and peace became the distinctively Christian greeting. Author Kent Hughes, he says that in the ears of those who first heard it, this phrase sounded like a brand new greeting from another world. Hey, here's God's greeting from the cornstalks. When that other realm presses in, it brings grace and peace. There's another point to be made here from verse 2. Notice Paul brings greetings from God our Father. This is so important. For I think one of the great causes of confused and shattered identities in our generation have been caused by absent dads. This is an epidemic problem in today's America. Realize the very purpose of a father is to anchor a child's identity. I mean, a dad is what gives you your name and more. A child looks like his dad. Dad is his most formative role model. Even when we don't like it or we don't want it to be, we still act like our dads. When we look ahead in life, whether he's there or not, we know he's the person who's supposed to be. And when dad leaves, it hurts. In his book, Fatherless Generation, John Soares, he writes this, Over time, the unmet needs created by dad's absence turn into something called father hunger. And in America alone, millions are starving to death. It is the sadness of what will never be. It's living with the knowledge that someone chose to turn his back on you. That someone has determined your value and decided you're not worth having around. And my friend, that scars a person. Sowers writes of a man who said his world fell apart at nine years old the day his dad left. Over the years, all he could conclude was, if my own father couldn't love me, how could anyone else? 
Sowers writes, when dead leaves, something dies. And you know, as much as I would like to, and I weep for this, but as much as I would like to, I can't ease your pain. If that's you, I can't ease your pain, but I know someone who can. God can. He loves you. And I would be remiss if I left this verse without pointing out that to everyone who's been abandoned by his or her dead, that God now wants to be your father. He does. In fact, Christ is willing to give you his name, Christian. In verse 2, Paul refers to God as our father. Verse 5 speaks of Jesus adopting us as his sons. This is one more reason to build your identity around Jesus He is a father to the fatherless. And then Paul begins the body of his letter with a blessing. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, in Ephesus, life was a beach. You could surf and swim and sunbathe. The city was a major port. Ladies, you could go down to the dock and visit all the boutiques and shop the latest fashions from around the world and seafood. Woo! Always fresh and scrumptious in Ephesus. You had all kinds of perks and privileges that were available to you simply by living in Ephesus. There, there were blessings that just came with the location. You didn't have to buy them or earn them or pay dues for them. They just came with the turf. And so it is in Christ. Paul tells his readers that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Again, you don't have to earn these blessings. You don't have to pay for them or buy them. You don't don't have to do some extraordinary work in order to deserve them. Oh, no. They were paid for in advance on the cross of Jesus Christ, and they are yours if you are in Christ. They just come with the turf. You see, being in Christ is not like being at Sam's Club. Aren't you glad? I mean, at Sam's Club or at Costco, you get some perks and some good deals, but you got to buy a membership. In Christ, the membership has already been paid. It was paid on the cross by Jesus. The good deals are now yours, and they're for free, and they're yours for only one reason, and that's because you're in Christ Jesus. Notice what kinds of blessings God puts in our basket. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus promised his followers that God would take care of our physical needs. Don't, 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 don't worry. Have confidence. Jesus says, if your heavenly Father cares for the birds and the flowers, he'll certainly care for you. Charles Spurgeon once put it, he that gives us heaven will certainly give us whatever spending money we need for the journey. And yet here the emphasis is on spiritual blessings. This is where you're rich. When God brought the Jews out of Egyptian slavery, he led them to a prime parcel. He promised his people if they entered the land, he would pour out on them every physical blessing, health and fertility and prosperity and victory and influence. God's blessings were physical because he was establishing in Israel an earthly and tangible kingdom. But you see, the kingdom that Jesus founded 
is spiritual and heavenly, not physical and earthly. And thus it's fitting that his blessings correspond with his kingdom. Our deliverer has led us out of slavery to sin into a new and better experience. In Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But again, to take advantage of the spiritual heavenly blessings, you've got to lean toward the cornstalks, toward that realm that butts up against ours. We have to stretch and listen and press toward that other world. You see, the blessings we're promised aren't in Atlanta. In fact, you may find some trials and some tough times in Atlanta. But we're promised every blessing in Christ. And in the coming weeks, we're going to discover those blessings. BBC Television produced a reality show called Monastery. Five men, not necessarily Christians or even religious people, were invited to spend 40 days of prayer and reflection in a Benedictine monastery. The men agreed to obey the rules, but nothing else was really expected. One of the men, Tony, was deeply impacted by his visit. Tony was a pornographer. He wanted to keep his job, but he was torn. Over the 40 days, he enjoyed and experienced a newfound peace in his life. With two days left in the monastery, a conflicted Tony comes to Brother Francis and he confesses. Part of me wants to keep the whole thing alive and carry it through. But I know the minute I get out, it will fade. Brother Francis gives Tony some good advice. He says, I want to give you something that I think will help. This is about discovering who you really are. And maybe, you should, and maybe what you really should be doing. And that is what we're trying to do here, discover who we really are. I want to give you this stone, this white stone. We have our Christian name, our family name. But we also have another name. It's called our white stone name. Revelation 2 verse 17 tells us that our new name is written on a white stone in heaven. I think it's your duty to find out what that name is, to find your white stone name. The monk, he hands Tony a white stone. And then he lays hands on him. And he prays a prayer for Tony. And it forces this man to decide. And you know, I think this is our job as well. To discover who we really are. What our name is in heaven. Our white stone name. And then choose to form an identity in Christ. For the next several months, this is our goal. To discover who we are spiritually and build a new identity. We'll align how we see ourselves with how God sees us. And today, I've given you a white stone. You still got it? Some people first service thought it was a memento. I think they swallowed it. Everybody got their white stone? Hope you got it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that white stone and I want you to either put it in your pocket or put it in your purse. And every time you touch it, every time your fingers roll across it this week, every time you take it out and set it aside at night, I want it to remind you of what you're learning. And this morning, that you're in Christ. That you're a saint, not an ain't. 
that God is the Father you can really trust. That His desire for you is grace and peace. And that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every time you touch it, every time you see it, let it remind you of those things.